Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Coleman. And I am Louise Polanker. Here on Media Path, we're rebuilding faith in American media. We don't tell you what to think. We don't have an axe to grind. We offer suggestions on things in anywhere in the media you might want to think about, like television or films or books or podcasts and so forth, so that you have enough information to grind your own axe. Our favorite part is welcoming talented guests. Today, our theme is documentary films. We have two people who have written and directed some really interesting material. We have Reed Harkness, who's done a film about his younger brother called Sam Now. He follows his brother Sam from ages 11 to 36. The major arc of the story is Sam searching for their mother who mysteriously disappeared. It's a heartbreaking but very hopeful story about how different siblings react to the same seismic event in the life of a family. And we have Brandon Ogborn. We're going to talk to Brandon about his film, Damn Dana, about his time serving tables at a restaurant in Long Beach that refused to close during the pandemic shutdowns. The owner of the restaurant goes from being a hero to kind of a pariah. Really interesting and very funny. So we'll talk to these talented guys in a minute. Wheezy, what do you have? I have a couple of intersecting media paths to recommend today. The first is Waco, The Aftermath on Showtime. And to limit confusion, there's a six-part dramatization of the standoff at the Branch Davidian compound on Showtime, and it's called Waco. This originally aired in 2018 on Paramount. And now Showtime is offering us a five-part series called Waco, colon, The Aftermath, which is, in effect, a sequel. The Aftermath series sets its stage with a Capitol Hill meeting one year after Waco. Here, the FBI's aggressive tactics are still being questioned. The Bureau's negotiator, Gary Nosner, played by Michael Shannon, is at odds with the tactical commander's decision to knock down walls and lob tear gas, leading to the deaths of over 70 people. Public opinion is split as the trial of five survivors begins, and when Nosner is called in to negotiate a bank robbery slash hostage situation, he notices that the Waco siege has heightened the rage of the perpetrator who talks repeatedly about government overreach and payback during the 20-hour standoff. It ends in peaceful surrender, but Nosner understands that a spark has been lit. Straight lines are drawn between Waco, Ruby Ridge, the Oklahoma City bombing, and the Capitol insurrection. It's interesting to note that we were told that Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols were lone troubled terrorists. They were, in fact, part of this movement. We now see that their extreme white separatist views have infested the entire Republican Party. So there is much to explore and contemplate, and a great way to do that is with a long car ride, a walk, or laundry folding over a podcast called Long Shadow. Hosted by Garrett Graff, the second season of Long Shadow details the connections between the Waco siege, Ruby Ridge, and the January 6th insurrection. You can actually trace the darkness back to slavery. Wait, you mean it was never okay to kidnap and own black people and violently force them into jump-starting our nation and then continuing to terrorize them in their freedom? If that's not okay, then how am I okay? I would answer that you're not, and we're not as a nation. You can blame Jews and immigrants and drag queens all you want, but until we address our original wounds, violence and racism and gun culture will continue to plague us. Long Shadow is infused with rich archival recordings and riveting eyewitnesses and expert interviews as it helps us understand why and how this dangerous fringe element has come to overrun mainstream politics, how dangerously misguided conspiracy theorists are now walking the halls of Congress. At what point did white nationalists shift their strategy from overthrowing our government to infiltrating it? And what can we do as citizens to help us all heal? You can listen to Long Shatter wherever you found this podcast, Fritz. I love both shows. I love the Waco show from 2018. Both were starred in by Michael Shannon, who's wonderful in both of them. Yeah, he's great. And all these guys who do uh, the investigation of uh, American domestic terrorism have been saying this in the media for a long time, that everything goes back to Waco. All lines begin at Waco through the current... Um, white supremacy movement and all of it, so and all those rocks turned over by Mr. Trump, and so that's why it had momentum and life beyond what it normally would have had. But my thesis is that this rage has been simmering, because you know, since the birth of our nation, mm-hmm. and so it needs to be 
addressed and it's not being addressed. All right. Well, I'm going to talk about American Manhunt, the Boston Marathon bombing. It's on Netflix. I thought since our theme is documentaries today, I'd go with one I thought was pretty amazing. The 10th anniversary of the Boston Marathon bombing was last week. And you remember at the finish line of the marathon, two bombs went off, killing three people and injuring hundreds more. The bombers were the Sarnayev brothers, Tamerlan and Jokar. This is a three-part look on the nearly impossible task to keep a whole metropolitan area on lockdown for a week, restoring peace and finding the bombers. This is first-person footage looking at events through the various participants, including the Boston police, the FBI, injured runners, loved ones of injured runners and the dead, even a friend of the brothers. It looks at the unsettling ripple through the Boston Muslim community fearing a backlash. It showed the dogged determination of the city folks that stood up and made famous the term Boston Strong. It looked at a Saudi national that was a person of interest for a minute that was eventually cleared but was still raked over the social media coals even after he had been cleared. There were thousands of hours of security camera video and cell phone footage that had to be parsed frame by frame. The manhunt took 100 hours. There were photos that were leaked to the press, which caused a stir. There's an interesting subplot where the brothers carjacked an MIT graduate student. When they pulled into a gas station to refuel, the student escaped. He called police and just happened to have his low jack pin number memorized, he gave it to the police and they were able to track the car down finding the brothers. Anyway, Tamerlan, the older brother, died in a police shootout. Joe Carr was caught hiding below the cover of a parked boat. I performed at the FBI in Washington last year and they have that boat in the FBI museum and I got to look at it. It's riddled with holes. It's a very disturbing scene. Joe Carr, the younger brother, after some unsuccessful appeals, is currently on death row in Massachusetts. Here's the twist. The Sarnayev family emigrated from Chechnya. During this particular time, Russia considered Chechnya its greatest threat of terrorism. When the Sarnayevs moved to the United States, Russian intelligence informed the FBI that these brothers were terrorists, but the FBI didn't have enough evidence to hold them. Crazy, huh? It's one of those things like with the Kennedy assassination, the FBI knew about what's his name, but nobody could do anything about it because they had no grounds to hold him. All right. We have two wonderful guests, two documentarians. Reed Harkness says he attended film school in his backyard in his garage, and I immediately respected him for that. At 18, he started making a series of short films about his younger brother, Sam. It turned into a 25-year project. He followed Sam from 11 years old to 36 years old. It's a great coming-of-age story, but the real arc is Sam searching for their mother, who mysteriously disappeared for three years. It's called Sam Now. It's a beautiful film, wonderful cinematography. I think the takeaway for me was how siblings in a family each react differently to a seismic event in the life of that family. Reed also directed an award-winning doc called Forest on Fire, and the documentary series Tropic got his uh, talent in House on Fire. Now, Brandon Ogborn, our other guest, is a playwright and a screenwriter and a producer and a journalist and really an overachiever. His film is called Damn, Dana, about the, his time serving tables at a restaurant in Long Beach that refused to close down during the pandemic shutdown. It's very funny. Brandon's a terrific comedy writer. He wrote and starred in a docu-comedy play about the role... <laughs> I can't wait to talk to him about <laughs> it's this. so good. About the role of tabloid coverage of Scientology's role in the Tom Cruise-Kate Holmes divorce. Played to sold-out crowds in Chicago. was performed at Just for Last Comedy Festival, which is a very prestigious comedy festival. So, Brandon and Reed, we're so happy to talk to you about your great work. And I can tell you by to, you have to ask your response. Opening, opening <laughs> no, question. I will. I just thought they'd say, well, I can't believe it's the honor of our lives to be here, and I can't believe Thanks we ever for got invited. Us, and is there any pay? Okay. We're really enjoying our time. <laughs> All right, so here we go. I'll start with Brandon because he's sitting right here. <laughs> so describe the restaurant where you worked in Long Beach. It's called Restoration. Yeah, it had a really And, and, and describe name. the owner and your boss, Dana. Um, Dana Tanner was my boss. Um, she's still a friend. Um, she's a ginger-haired uh, Mormon from Utah. And, um, yeah, I worked there for five, 
five, six years when I moved um, doing comedy in Chicago, uh, sketch sketch and improv, and whereas where I wrote the Tomcat Project play that brought me out here, um, it was the first job I got, uh, and I lived in Long Beach working for her for years, and it was it was fine. I mean, it was like the best burger in Long Beach. It was a really popular brunch spot. People would get drunk on mimosas. Um, it was an outdoor patio. It was a block from my house. It was as good as it gets for being a waiter. And then the place burned down. Um, and I was on unemployment for a year. I was working on different shows. I was working on telephone stories, the, the podcast I'm sure we may talk about. And uh, then they reopened, and within three months, COVID happened. And as everybody knows, it was tremendously difficult for the people that died. And then secondly, the nurses and the doctors. And then third, um, a lot of industries um, like massage therapists and things like that. And restaurants, just they took a major, major hit. Um, but after being closed for a few months, as um, we kind of go down the rabbit hole of it, they they reopened things up. And then around Thanksgiving, um, Governor Newsom gave the order to shut everything down again. So that was the time where Dana decided she's not going to do it. And there were a number of other restaurants, uh, local ones in Long Beach that will go unnamed that did remain open but did so quietly. And that's kind of what I thought she would do. I decided to not work at that time because my wife was pregnant with our second kid and she was already working at the hospital as a labor nurse. So I didn't want to, you know, at the time, no, you remember how scared we were. Nobody knew anything about it. We're talking pre-vaccine. Pre-vax. Um, you know, people are dying. Our, we had neighbors that were dying. It was terrifying. And then Dana decided, I'm going to stay open, which I, I said, you know, I guess I get it. I'm not going to roll the dice. My wife's coming in from work, stripping her clothes off outside, covered in blood, you know, had an N95 on the whole day. Her face is crushed. She's, you know, nine months pregnant. And um, then Dana decided to throw a New Year's Eve party. And that's when shit went sideways, so to speak. Um, and it started to get local news. And then it started to make national news as the battle raged. And she became a pariah in Long Beach, which is pretty liberal. But you got to remember, we're on the border of Orange County. So we're in L.A. County, last town, and then it's Orange County, as they say in the documentary, they call it the Orange Curtain. So it it did deal with a lot of kind of the division in the country kind of reflected within the town of Long Beach where you, you got, you know, incredible diversity um, and a lot of left-leaning people right on the border of, you know, Trump country where they're having, you know— I mean, there's reasonable people, but there are also a few White Lives Matter rallies. Um, and so it just kind of became a powder keg. Um, in the dock, uh, as was reported in the news, Dana, eventually they took her gas line to shut her down. And she allegedly, she denies it, um, had somebody hook the gas line back up to a neighbor's. And um, there was an evacuation and, and then criminal charges were filed. So I was lucky enough to just give her a text and say, hey, you mind if I come over and film this on my iPhone? And she said, you know, pretty much no, no, there's no press that's bad press. So I ended up spending three years on it. I thought it'd take a couple months. Now, you guys are, are still friends. Is she happy with your portrayal of her and the film? Because it is a controversial subject and people have strong feelings on both sides. Yeah. Um, my dad, who's a big Trumper, he came out to visit with my mom uh, a couple of weeks ago and he said, you know, who I really want to meet because my little sister came and she was like, we hope we get to see some celebrities. We'll go up to L.A. And my dad goes, I just really want to meet that Dana and shake her hand. So she came over for coffee um, and they're running for office together. Um, ah, no, uh, She's a folk hero. She is a folk hero in the eyes of many. I think what I was shocked to see. If you see the doc, I make fun of everybody on the on the left and the right, and I especially make fun of myself for being a selfish asshole who really only looked after himself, getting cosmetic surgeries during the pandemic and not helping anybody. But um, what I was surprised when it went online was I had a similar experience with the Michael Jackson podcast where people who are fans of his and believe he's innocent, they listen to the podcast and they go, it proves that he's innocent, and the people that think he's guilty, they're like, he, sh he totally showed that he's guilty. The YouTube comments are pretty funny because there's people who are like, fuck Dana. She Sorry, can we swear? Or should I not? I guess I so. Now we can. <laughs> they're like, she needs to go to prison with all the other Trump clowns. I'm glad this guy made a documentary to show how awful she is. 
And then there's all these other comments that are like, this documentary is so awesome. I'm glad they show that Fauci and Newsom are criminals and Dana's going to have a statue of Lord. herself in downtown Long Beach. You know? I, oh, I feel nauseous. The statue's going to depict her hijacking someone else's gas. She goes at the beginning to being a very sympathetic character and sort of being the the she's carrying the spear for all the employees and wants to keep them working so that they're not broken she talks about the chef and all these sort of sad stories but then as it goes along you begin to question her motives and when it gets to blowing up the neighborhood with a misplaced gas line i'm thinking i don't know if i yeah i mean i still don't know Oh, good. <laughs> you know, I think that's why I was attracted to it. I mean, there were many variations of it. There was definitely like a a little harsher of a cut uh, before I kind of went with the more empathetic one. All right, Reed. So I want you to set the stage for us here. You you had, there was you and Sam. Uh, you had stepbrothers. You had the same father with different moms. Am I right about that? That's right. And so describe your family and how one day... For a still, even at the end of the film, I didn't know, I don't think she explained herself well why she took off. Explain your mom leaving what was the catalyst for the beginning of this film. Sure. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, this is this is an interesting story that evolves over 25 years. My family, the Harknesses, are, you know, a very nurturing, very connected family. They, um, they're almost all educators and involved in early childhood development. So I always looked at them growing up as like very equipped. Um, so when my stepmom, Sam and Jared, my half brother's mom, leaves Seattle uh, unexpectedly with no communication, um, I really thought that they would step up and and do something about it. And nobody, nobody really takes action. Years pass and she's gone and no one knows where she is. Um, meanwhile, Sam and I, my younger brother, eight years younger, have been making short films together. Sam's the subject and I'm the director. And I'm thinking sort of like Michael Apted, making a film every year as he grows up. In that process, we're talking about what the next film is going to be. And Sam has a bunch of immature ideas around his masked, uh, superhero alter ego and i just suggest how about how about the blue panther goes and finds his mom and um sam actually responds with a yes to that and wants to go on a road trip with me to find his mom so we do this that was in 2002 um anyway i filmed and filmed and filmed my family as developments occur over time um you know initially the way that sam responds to this whole thing is he kind of stuffs his emotions and doesn't doesn't really address the feelings he has around it whereas my other half brother jared was so depressed at the time he was like the, the the picture of depression he was on the floor and couldn't get up and missed something like 67 days of school in a row um this is a story about resilience. It's a story about family dynamics. It's a story about how messy and beautiful family is. It's also a story about generational trauma. I dig really deep in this story. It's so beautiful on many levels. Um, now, I, I thought each of the siblings had a different way for coping. I think Sam used the Blue Panther as his alter ego and was able to sort of control his life by the actions he committed with the Blue Panther. It just seemed like a way for him to escape the reality of that. It seemed like Jared uh, let his feelings completely destroy him for a while. But in the arc of your movie, he really makes a nice recovery and ends up owning a coffee shop and seems very uh, comfortable and he smiles. We're at the beginning of the show. And I wanted to ask you this question. You were watching all these brothers process their feelings. I wanted to know what your feelings were. It seemed like maybe you were able to put yourself into your work, put yourself into this film, which was your way of coping with what the circumstances were. I think you hit the nail on the head. I think that the film and the making of the film was me reacting to all these surprises that occur in my life 
and my family as I knew them. So that's what I put in the movie. All the other boring stuff, like like Christmas and whatever, I left that out. Um, but yeah, I I'm a person that's uh, I've. I would be on the floor just like Jared. I would, I mean, and this did hit me very deeply. It was so staggering to see my brothers go through this in both their reactions. And it was very surprising to see how my family responded to it. So I was feeling a lot of things, but I was also holding the camera. And then I think when you do that, you're a little bit like a war photographer where mm -hmm. you're like, okay, track the action focus because i'm doing this task i'm able to separate a little bit but the 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 camera is also like a truth seeker it sort of pulls the truth out of people and it's it becomes a form of therapy and that you know the way that you chose to help your brothers was extremely powerful because your film tackles the difficult terrain of boys and men addressing their feelings and your brothers sam and jared are, are doing it in the absence of a mother who could have better facilitated the processing of their feelings. And so it's brave and it's beautiful. And you and your camera are, are worth years of therapy. That that one scene where, where, where Sam has the camera and we see you saying, does nobody get what this boy has just done? <laughs> like you're, it's just like you want to hold your head and scream, but that's not your family's style. So you did it masterfully by telling this big, beautiful story with your camera. So talk talk about that a little bit and how that felt for you. Wow. Um, in that scene you're describing, uh, I'm not, I don't put myself in the movie very much, but there's one scene where, where I do, and that's the scene where I'm standing up in front of my family and addressing something that I'm noticing in real time, which is that nobody really wants to address difficult family topics. I think this is pretty universal. It's like, hey... We'd all just rather pretend that, that things are more or less okay. Let our neighbors and our friends just think that things are okay when, you know, um, really they may not be. And in this situation, um, I see multiple levels of avoidance going on. Sam's avoiding his feelings. <laughs> My family is sort of avoiding this part of like, let's let's create space for, you know, really talking about and processing uh the trauma that's occurred here. Um, as I, you know, approach this with the camera, which I do also see as a flashlight as well as a shield, um, <laughs> I'm I'm getting in there and I'm like, I'm going after um, these questions that I have. That's the whole movie is just a string of questions that I have, and I like to lean into nuance. I think that there's there's so much more that can be seen when we let things play out mm. and we lean into potential for understanding. So I really lean really far in this movie into like understanding each of the characters and where they're coming from. And I also, since they're my family and they're not really going anywhere, I allow myself to use the filmmaking technique of patience to really see how things bloom or don't bloom um i was determined to tell a story of growth from the very, very beginning of this inception of the project you know and i and i followed through on that to show a very interesting angle on growth i'll tell you what was really interesting to me was the different reactions in your family you and sam were the only ones who were brave enough to go on this quest of the holy grail which is your mother and Sam especially, because Sam really wanted to do it, and you just followed him along. But your fathers and the rest of your family and your grandmother and the adjacent people literally showed no interest in discovering where your mother was. And when she returned, it was almost a not a nonplussed reaction, but it's as if they had edited her out of their lives. And it was just a matter of fact that she showed up one day. I, I just found it so interesting. Wow. Yeah. It, there's a lot of levels to this. I think that, um, yeah, certainly like me and Sam going on our trip together is, is one whole thing, you know, that's it's told through the documentary in this way where, you know, we've developed this bond together, making films together, and we've developed this uh, this connection over going on adventures together. Um, 
And that allows us to really like lean into this idea of making a movie or, you know, going and having an experience that is, is really difficult probably for, for most people seeking reconnection with a, with a missing parent. Um, and Jared did not want to go on that trip. He, you know, it was just, it was too much for him at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, but the, the aftermath um, is us going on that trip really helped resolve some things for Jared. And then with he my really family. He really recovered nicely and became like a totally buoyant, different human being by the end of the movie. It was gorgeous. It was like so a, cool, it right? was a gift for Jared. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't wired to do it himself, but, you know, you guys were in interference for him and he, he needed it. And, you know, the other, the other thing is that, you know, the connection, you had the filmmaking connection already in place with Sam. So, you know, in deference to Jared, you know, he didn't, ha he didn't have that familiarity with the, these adventures. And you guys, you and Sam had been playing at drama for so many years that actually uh, attempting real drama was just like, uh, just suspend your disbelief for, for this next adventure. And, and Jared wasn't there with you guys. He hadn't taken that journey. But he was yeah. sure ready to benefit from. Yeah, you saved his life uh, in, in sort of a metaphorical yeah. way. I feel like you saved mm. both of their lives because, mm -hmm. you know, mm. Sam was certainly a very resilient kid, but he was also compartmentalizing. And, and Jared was ready to heal as soon as healing was, was available to him, like some sunlight that he would grow towards, mm. and he did. But, it, but it's you. You're the hero in your brother's story. We have to talk to Brandon now because yeah, he's weeping I mean, openly. <laughs> okay we'll be right back yeah please. so for me i mean oh take a no, break no you go ahead please make your comment yeah oh yeah sorry so yeah uh, for uh you know i don't know about saving lives but it was um always a goal for me when i when i had younger brothers to be a bigger brother i think i wanted that because i was the i was the young one that didn't i'd never had the bigger brother mm -hmm. and and i wanted that for myself so when i had the opportunity I think I was really interested in doing all those big brother things, connection, you know, just like playing with them and um, being at their level. Um, and then in this case, like, you know, going so far as like being a really protective older brother. Um, yeah. And then, you know, the whole family. You gave them a gift. This film is a gift to your brothers. I, I really feel. Oh, that's really sweet of you. And, you know, I, you know, and the end of the film, too, is a whole other thing. But, like, uh, first and foremost, you know, I believe that, you know, family is maybe the most, it's it's our foundation, and then it's also, like, maybe the most important thing that we know. Um, so so I have leaned into those those ideas personally. But, right. um, yeah, I'm, I mean, then the family bit is, like, a real confusing deal because it's, like, you can see, and I have a lot of empathy for the Harkness family, you can see where these difficult topics, you know, become, we become really hard for them. And as we grow older and learn more things, we can start to understand, like, how complex relationship dynamics can be and how complex family dynamics can be. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, I mean, my dad was the one that was like, he was the present father. He was avoidant, but he was also just like, he was there. You know, that that means a lot. And truthfully, he could have been the one with a greatest amount of resentment to process because he had to hold this family together as his wife evacuated the premises. And her his reaction when she came home was so fascinating to me. Anyway, when we come back to you, Reed, I want to get you to do the forensics of your trip. I think some of the most interesting thing was having to look up all the names of these people in the phone book and just dialing people at random on the beach. It was wonderful, but I have to ask. Wait, before we move to him, though, I think Thomas had... had oh, I'm sorry. I was just gonna. I think you. I had a quick question for him. Um, I think you mentioned this earlier, but um, just the beginning. The beginning of this. It sounds like an amazing film. I'm, I'm really interested. I'm, I'm definitely gonna give it a watch. Um, I just come from a big family and a and a strong mother, so I feel like it'll be interesting <laughs> for for myself. But um, so so it started as you making films with your younger brother before you even realize you're going to make a documentary or you kind of knew yes. it was going to be a documentary. It's a okay. film. It's a film series. Um, Sam one, Sam two, Sam three, Sam four, Sam five. And I'm making them 
one per year. They're short films. They're silent. They're shot on Super 8. They're pretty experimental. They're about growing up. And magically, the themes uh, presented within those short films are really good B-roll to represent other things that happen in the movie. Right. So, Thomas, it's very kind of like the B-roll is really beautiful and experimental Mm. and ethereal and... You know, it's really cinematic. beautifully shot. Really but it's on shot. all different types of cameras as every year progresses, and they yeah, get. Yeah, yeah. I'm a cinematographer by day, so uh, that uh, that that sounds great. But, so it's um, yeah, it's really stylized and a lot of fun. But um, I I wanted to talk to I wanted you and Brandon to talk a little bit about uh, the filmmaking because you had like lots of different source material from 25 years. And Brandon, did you shoot your film all on an iPhone or? Yeah. Um, yeah, it was all on an iPhone. Um, and then the B roll I had was like YouTube, you know, lots of news clips, TikToks, (laughs) all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I was curious, like Sam, this is my first documentary film. I did like sketch, you know, sketch comedy videos and stuff when I was in Chicago, but this is the first thing I've done on film. But like, how do you... I was reading James Stewart, the um, New York Times author who just wrote this great book um, with uh, another writer from the New York Times on um, the Sumner Redstone family. But he has this great book on writing nonfiction and like when you hit when you hit the point that you know you're done and you can start putting it together. <laughs> that like, was my when, question. When do you know you're like done? I mean, you're maybe not thinking of like you're reporting, but you're essentially reporting on your family. Like, like you've been doing it for years. When did you know, like, okay, I got it now, or this is what I'm working towards. These are the shots I need to complete it. You know, because mine, like, it kept my documentaries is 45 minutes, and it kept going and going because it was kind of following the news and following her court case. So it was kind of in real time in a way. Um, so I guess that's sort of a question for you of like when do you know you're done or when you when you have it when you have the story or you can start breaking yeah, can, the story. That's yeah. a great question. That's a really good question. For me, um story was the the answer. Um you know, what is story? And I think that um to me, you know, a, a, a traditional arc of a story is character goes from one point to another. And, you know, Sam starts off with this concept of just like, all he wants is to get his mom back. That'd be the greatest thing ever. And if he could just get his mom back, then, you know, that would solve all his problems. Um, And then at the end of the movie, it's something completely different. I'm glad you didn't stop it with him being happy that he found his mom. I'm glad you let it percolate to the point where we understand how this experience affected his future because he became he became a social worker and took care of young kids and it was like he was reparenting himself he was making himself look good for those holes that were left in his life by the absence of his mother later and also what you know i'm just going to say that watching these two films back to back you know i'm always looking for through lines and, and shared themes and stuff and so your both of your films feature a central character who says she's doing something for everyone else but is actually doing it for herself and what she's doing has damaging consequences so when you feel that you must do something that will hurt others you have to be courageous enough to own it and to say this is what i need to do i am sorry if i am hurting people and it sounds like it feels like to me dana and sam's mom both wanted to oh i was you know i was saving you from me or you know i was making Mm. sure everyone had still had jobs like we've all encountered those people in our lives right so let me let me attach a question that's a good point wheezy uh, what I found unsatisfying about your film was I don't think your mom fessed up enough. Your mom had this great way. It's, it's not his mom. Oh, it's Sam's and Jared's mom. I, I claim her as a mom. She okay. was the mother figure in yeah. your family. But but she seemed to almost flip the script and say, well, if there's anything to be processed, it's you guys that have to process it, not me. No, you're the one that left. I want some, oh, sorry. I want some explanations. If she doesn't have anything to process... That means she's not processing real human feelings. No, it's a very narcissistic outlook, I thought, from her. And I don't think you got the answer you deserved. And what was heartbreaking was Sam was so happy to find his mom. He didn't even care why she left. She had just returned to his life, and he became this little boy again. 
Were, were you as unsatisfied with her answers as I was as a viewer? I was, I was, um, I was deeply unsatisfied on many levels with the adults and, and how they're reacting. <laughs> I expected more from everyone. Mm -hmm. And so I, I dug really deep into trying to, trying to find empathy for, for each of them, especially my stepmom, because, um, guess what? This, this, uh, this, this patterning doesn't come from nowhere. Mm -hmm. It, it comes from, uh, a deep pain that she has from, you know, from her childhood. And she's disassociated and that's really, and I'm not going to give away too much about your movie, but you do help us understand this type of personality and where she has pushed her feelings to, you know, to a place where she can't access them. Yeah. And, and she was I, in an Asian orphanage and then suddenly you understood a lot of what she was processing there. Abandonment was like a, a, a central theme in her life from the time she was born. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. But at the same time, it's like, Having, you know, growing up with uh, another mom, my, you know, my mom, Chayo, who's also in the movie, who was very nurturing and is always there and will listen to this podcast and, you know, <laughs> is like always like Shout being out. encouraging. She's the Here one doing go. the PR. <laughs> she has. It's her name, she, Jennifer. You know, she's she, like, she re she's the very representation of like, I think what most people associate as like mother role. Right. Mm -hmm. And how forbidden it is for a mom to leave. Yet, how many fathers do this? How many, oh, how many yeah. dads yeah. have left their families? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and why is it like absolutely evil for a mom to do it? Whereas like, yeah, it's probably it's probably pretty normal if a dad does it. Yeah, but I mean, I guess as a viewer, you're thinking, I was thinking, and I don't know if you were thinking this, Reed, as you were present with these people, but I was thinking that folks know more than what they're saying. Like, the reason they're not looking is because they know where she is, and they know that it it's so hurtful, you know, to have to say to a child, she just chose a different life, and it doesn't include you guys, which is what happened. Bad but, excuse. But I think maybe they knew. What do you, What do you think? I don't think they knew. Okay. I mean, I think there was there was one person that that might have known, but but uh, it, that's uh, you know, debatable. And you know, the yeah, they didn't know. They didn't know where she was, nor did it really anyone in Seattle. Um, so this is where you know it's really really strange. I mean, yes, my dad was hurt by his divorce uh with Joyce. You know, like there was there's pain there and I could see where, you know, when he says something like you know, he didn't want to reach out to her. I get where that's coming from. But problem is is like Sam and Jared are, you know, and this is where it's weird because it's like I think this is okay. Years are years have passed by, and maybe like in the day to day, you know, okay, my dad's you know taking care of all the laundry and getting the kids to school and feeding them and clothing them and making sure that like you know all the normal things are running. Maybe he can't see the progression of of uh, you know of hurt that's going on, but um, I was out of the house at that point, and I certainly could, and I know other members of my family could. And it's just, you know, this is where it's like, okay, I can I can have a lot of sympathy for for families who who have pain, you know, like we all have something in our families that is painful and that no one really wants to to deal with. Um but, you know, here's a situation where the youth in the family, me and my brother Sam, decide to take things into our own hands, mm -hmm. you know. My dad gives us the keys to his minivan. Mm -hmm. um, my sister lends us her little brick cell phone at the time. These things, uh, oh, I didn't mention I have a sister. <laughs> She's on my mom's side. But uh, this is, man, I just I just want to say, like, there's a lot of things that are, like, really shocking to people in this movie. But as we've shown this to audiences, I see time after time audience members sharing equally painful stories absolutely it's just a great illustration of family dynamics i think that's why it resonates with a lot of people yeah no absolutely for sure and, and you know you're just brave enough to go there and these are things that are, are 
fascinating to explore in other families and painful to explore in our own. And, you know, and, and you maybe were just enough removed to go ahead and take the reins here. That, you know, and it's just such a heroic act. And also to spend 25 years compiling and then know where all your footage is. <laughs> it's like heroic. For, speaking as a filmmaker, like how many hard drives were we going through? And how did what was your like housekeeping techniques in terms of keeping all your footage straight and knowing what was where? Yeah, I can't count. Like, OK, every time I'd have to like move houses or something and then I'd say, hey, can you come over and help me move? And then some friend would be like lugging boxes and boxes of hard drives and hard film reels and videotapes and you name it. You know, like I've just I just stored away all these stories and not to mention also the emotional baggage of carrying around all of these stories inside your head and in your heart for this long. And then like finally, like, here you go. Here's the story. I cut it all together for you. Um, you know, it's an amazing catharsis for me to release the film. Are you like, I want to do a comedy next? Yeah, yeah, let's work together. <laughs> do you feel like, I, I also wonder, like, to connect to your film and to not get too political, but, like, if that story of a mom leaving her family is going to become so much more common because abortion's being outlawed all over the That's country. That's a really interesting question. They'll yeah. be like, yeah, did you ever see Sam now? It happened to me as well, you mm. know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, there, I mean, here, like, there's crazy stats, but like... Plus, we're at a time now, Reed, excuse me, where women but, are more empowered. Women don't have to get their identity from men. And if they're unhappy in the relationships, they're just not going to stick around to it and beat themselves in the head with a sledgehammer year after year in an unhappy circumstance. They're going to leave. And it's not satisfying to those who are victimized by it. But it might be that it, it's sort of in a in an adjunct way about women's empowerment women i'm seizing control of my life i, I don't know I, but you still have to tell your kids I, is, oh my these god are the choices that, that's I'm the thing i'll never be able and to I'll, I'll send you a birthday card but i just can't do this anymore you still you still no, have, I, to, I, I, have to tell them yeah, yeah something all right let's each share the reactions of the people in your world after you finished and published your films you go first brendan what what do you mean like okay the movie's done Oh. Everyone has strong opinions about it. Yeah. Now you've played you put yours on on YouTube and there's like hundreds of comments it's only been there for a month. So tell me how Dana felt and tell me how other other employees or or customers of the restaurant how did everybody feel about it? Um the the reaction was really overwhelmingly good. I mean, I'll be honest like I don't think it's the best thing I made. By far, I I had worked on it so long, I was just like, I want to be fucking done with this thing. You got it's, it. I, it. It's a 45-minute film. I thought it was going to be a five-minute film. Oh, wow. You know, I was like, it's going to be a little short, and then it just kept growing and growing, and it was, as I said, following kind of the news and then following her, you know, complicated criminal case that went with a civil case and on and on. Um, and I was just like, I want to be done with it. And we, and we released it. It happened to be that it was finally done on the third anniversary of the stay-at-home orders for California. Wow. So it seemed like a good time to to put it out. But people really enjoyed it, and they laughed really hard, and I'm in it. And it's kind of cutting between what's going on in the news, what's going on with Dana, and then me just kind of being on this perpetual vacation getting all this extra unemployment money. It's not really well, a vacation, not really well, yeah. a because, I mean, I'm taking not a vacation. care of two you have, kids. That's, two, that could be know. said as your own private and hell. Yeah. And they are infants. They're like two and zero. So he was yeah. very busy. It's it's a bloodbath. Um, <laughs> I describe it as the Vietnam War because there's always somebody crying and on fire. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm in it and I'm making jokes about myself and stuff. And, and then I'm also making a lot of fun of Dana, which I did at the restaurant when I worked for her. And when I told her I was going to do this and she was enthusiastic, I was like, hey, I'm going to treat this as a real piece of journalism and I'm going to make fun of you just like I do behind your back at work. And she was like, great. So I got a release and I just started going. I was in communication with her. I never showed her the doc before it came out because I just didn't want to risk, you know, as, as happened when I was working on the Jackson thing, different people involved in the cases would be like, you know, I just need to have approval of what you put in about me. And then some people were like, I need approval of your whole series before. And I'd be like, no, I'm not, I'm not putting you in. You know? My thing was like, you interviewed me 
We're talking about he did a, a podcast about the Michael Jackson trials, which I was involved in. You interviewed me. I forgot about it. And then it came out and I listened to it. And that was it. Oh, yeah. yeah. But you also asked me for $100,000. I did. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but she, I, I kept her abreast in the sense of being honest with her of like, hey, here's the tone. I, you know, here's here's some of what I'm covering. She also shared with me all of the, you know, her her hard drives and iCloud drives of like all the photos from the restaurant, all the PR from the restaurant. So I had this mass trove of of B roll to go through, um, and just kind of kept her abreast. There, there's there's a number of twists in the doc. Um, that I won't give away that, you know, there it's like insane things that the city was doing, which I think is where where people on both sides. It's about shocked. more than Dana. It's a really and I think this will hook people in. It's about the struggle of a small business owner during that pandemic. And so many went out of business and so many didn't have the guts that she had to stick up for herself and her employees and fight against City Hall. It really is about more than that. And you guys did some good things during that time. I mean, you fed seniors during yeah. that time. Yeah. No, it's also really about how do we as humans on Earth face this catastrophe like what is the right thing to do to keep people safe and to keep economies alive and to keep households alive to keep emotional health alive like what do we do well and i think that i tried to even though it's on it goes on both sides like the choice i made was like what i feel is the truth is that everybody's fucking dumb and even the experts didn't know Fauci didn't know. We were learning Trump, as like, we went through and it. Nobody, you know, Trump was as good as Biden in some respects, you know, of just leadership of DeSantis and Newsom and the death rates. When you look at it, they ended up being kind of a, a toss up. You know no, what I mean? I, I would I would have to argue that point because Joe has good intentions and Trump was trying to weaponize the virus. Well, and also denying it for a great extent of the first leg of it. And and disinformation and terrifying people and blaming others so that we could all hate more. You know, so yeah, I have strong opinions about that. But like my personal thing with the pandemic was like, how do I protect and respect and not be a vector? Those were my three mantras. Like, I'm not going to be a vector. Nobody's going to catch this from me. Because you don't know where it travels after that and who it kills. And you don't want to be a part of that chain. She didn't seem to care. Even if none of the employees ever got COVID, we don't know that none of the customers ever got COVID and didn't bring it home to someone who died. We don't know that. So it's just, it's a, it, we went through a very difficult period and most of us behaved responsibly and tried to do the best thing within our own safety parameters of what felt right to us. Because we went through a lot of, arguments among family members about whether to have a function oh, yeah, indoors yeah. or i mean we all went through it all you dad's know? coming but he's not getting the vaccine <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? i had i mean i don't want to throw my dad under the bus but i remember the family was going to come out you know this is year one this is like around november the the presidential elections happening my parents are coming out uh you know like in a month or so and um i'm like hey, you know i'm having the arguments with them like you, you know, if you're gonna hold the kids, you're gonna you got to wear a mask. And my mom's like, "Why well, ain't gonna be? I ain't gonna be wearing no mask." You know, I was like, "Well, you're gonna have to be outside. You can wave at the fucking kids." You know, <laughs> and then somebody out lied. They send me a picture. Donald Trump had a rally in Muskegon, Michigan. This is you know three days before the election, and some guy tags me on Facebook, and I, and I open it up, and it's the crowd. And he goes, "Is that your dad?" And my dad's in the front of the crowd without his mask on, going like. Really? And I was like, I'm going to fucking kill you myself, dad. <laughs> you know. <laughs> That's 3 days before he's going to hold your kid? No, no, no. It was oh. it was 3 days before the presidential oh, okay. election. I think your next film should be about your parents. You know, um, I yeah, was going to ask really I was going to ask Reed about it because my dad has I was just talking to him on the way here. He spent over 10 years working on a Republican board game that was originally called the Rush Limbaugh board game. Um and I've got so much footage of this. And it's hysterical. He, he's now trying to make it as an app. He thinks it's going to be like the thing that's going to change 
change history and change his life. He knows life. that Rush Limbaugh's dead, right? I haven't told him yet. Oh, okay. No, when, when Rush died, he changes the game of politics. But he's like, this is going to be the thing. And when he was out here a couple of weeks ago, he almost paid a bunch of money to these app developers to try to do an online version. But He can't even make the Tucker game anymore. You know, Does he know that? Okay. Yeah, I know. Okay. He's going to have to, well, he's going to have to take all of his Tucker board game pieces out. He's going to have to start from scratch again. <laughs> oh, no. Hey, Lemon. Another thing I really appreciated about the end of your film was because our curiosity was building throughout the whole film, wondering how everybody made out. And another point that Sam made, uh, which is so interesting to me, was that abandonment was an issue for him later in his life in relationships with friends and so forth and something he had to address himself. He became very evolved later in his life and really did great self-investigation, but it was so interesting how abandonment with his mother was a big issue, but then it became an issue with him and friends later on in his life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, uh, the, one of the power, you know, the power of this film is that like, I'm, I'm seeing, you know, Sam grow into a man and like, in that time, we can see these, uh, you know, some of some of these things um, surface as Sam, like, basically is falling into patterns that his mom has mm -hmm. and um, and how he begins to recognize those things. He gets into therapy and he starts to recognize that. And then he starts to say, like, how do I step out of this? But you set so, up the pathways for that to happen, whereas no one did that for his mom. So she doesn't have them. They don't exist. You set up those pathways for that introspection. I think, I mean, I think that, yeah, there's like, I would say the Harkness family, you know, ha had set up levels of protection, you know, like, there is consistency, there is a lot of love in the family, there is like a lot of connection points. And, and he had, he had a lot of good role models, you know, like our grandmother is like incredible. Um, and, and I think that uh, he was a, he was luckily able to to lean more into that. I mean, I still you know he's none of us are like perfect humans, but like you know I'm just amazed at at, at my brother and his growth. And you know he does like like his his day job is um, he works with um, like at risk youth, and he it's does so um, cool. domestic that's, that's violence I mean. advocacy. Mm -hmm. It's so yeah. cool that that's what his life ended up at. It's Really amazing. And Grandma it's, is my hero. She oh, is, she's, she's my hero. She, she was the wisest person in your film. Yeah, Absolutely. she is tremendously evolved. And it, it's just, it's really inspirational to listen to how she was able to just see everything. She was able to rise above everything and see everyone as individuals. You know, it, it's quite beautiful. And uh, maybe that's, you know, you're, you're, you and your camera gave everyone the opportunity to open up that way and, and see each other as complicated. Not, you know, it's not that it's just not life is messy. It, it, it's just not that simple. Right. What and we go grandma through. said the great word of wisdom. You never know what's going on in somebody yeah. else's mind. Yeah. That's how she analyzed it. And so she didn't put the burden on herself to try to figure out why Joyce had left. And she was so smart. And, you know, I've so, said that about old people. They're smarter. Uh, so let's hear how I your folks that. responded to the film. That's a perfect tee up, actually. The yeah. very first person that I shared the film with was my grandmother. Oh, um, she was losing her vision, and mm. um, and I, it was like my last chance, really, to like for her to be able to see the movie. I felt, and uh, so I. <laughs> this is so funny. <laughs> so I, I'm like, okay, Grandma, do you, are you ready to watch the movie? You know, th this is after years and ye imagine it, years of people saying like, when's this movie going to be done? When are we going to get to see this? Yep. And then finally I'm like, hey, grandma, are you ready to watch this? And she's like, sure. And then I was like, okay, we're going to watch it at, at 9 p.m. or whatever. And then like, and then she calls, she texts me and she's like, oh, you know what? Downton Abbey's on. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> And then <laughs> half hour later, she calls me back and she's like, what am I doing? Come over. And so I come over and this, at this point, the movie isn't completely done and it's like in two parts. And so my editor is uploading the parts to Vimeo mm -hmm. real time. And so we're like, hey, this one's ready. Let's watch the first half. And so we start watching and I'm thinking my grandma, who's very talkative, very social, is going to be commenting the whole way, you know, like just like when you're watching a home video, there's so and so, there's so and so. 
she was riveted. <laughs> she just was so caught up in the story of our family, surprisingly. Um, it was like she was watching another family story. Oh, wow. And then at the end of the movie, she was just like, oh, my God. And then she's like, and this is someone that has worked, um, like I said, in early childhood education her whole life. Mm-hmm including doing a 20-year research project where she went into houses coding parent and child dynamics. Wow. She turns to me and she says- Wow, how ironic is that? That's crazy. Yeah, she turns to me and she's like, everyone working in parenting needs to see this movie, which was like, oh my God, you're my hero, grandma. There's the stamp of approval. You're telling me that this is valuable to you. So I I just like, I don't know how things happen, you know? Like clearly we can see like, Sam, you know, going into the social work where he's like trying to help other young people. He's like, okay, I can see how those things mm-hmm. can happen. You know, I don't, I don't know for me, but like, you know, I, I really, uh, um, I have a lot of appreciation for the Harkness family and my grandmother. Yeah. Um, um, who passed away two months ago. Oh, and, and so, so I just like, oh. I'm so happy to be, um, kind of carrying the torch and. And also, you know, kind of um, representing her as I go. How lovely that you like, sort of committed her wisdom to videotape before yeah. she passed away. That's that's a gift to the family, to future generations of your family. Yes. I just, you know, I love her so much. And I, I just, uh, I'm, I'm so honored to um, have her as like, you know, the ultimate grandmother. She just oh, really yeah. was. Very cool. So how about how about others? How about the brothers? How about dad? Oh, like, yeah, there's a crazy story with Sam. I mean, mm-hmm. um, Sam opted to not watch the movie, even though I offered it to him months in advance of our premiere in Toronto. And he opted to not watch it until we got to Toronto at Hot Docs. And we watched it in our hotel room right before going to the premiere wow and he turns to me and says right before watching it he's like you know i feel a lot of obligation to like represent this movie and like i don't know how i'm gonna feel like i might just like crawl away into a cave for weeks after watching this and so i'm like okay yeah okay so we're here premiering the movie and sam might crawl away into a cave so we watched the movie and luckily he didn't crawl away into a cave um he actually really appreciated it and (laughs) We went. We walked from from our hotel to to the theater and 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 presented it in front of an audience. And you know, it's just been one long string of crazy moments like that. Wow. <laughs> well, you deserve it. It's quite wow. beautiful. I, I I do want to go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I'm just curious. Did did you show Sam or anyone any of the edit edits throughout the years at all, or was it completely like a fresh viewing when he first saw it? No, this was the the letter that I had to write that was really difficult and I wasn't going to send it until it I had, ready. you know, crossed the T's. Gotcha. That's amazing. Yeah. Before we end this, we have to find out about the Tomcat, uh, Oh man, Tomcat is docu- so good. comedy play, which sounds hysterical. It is. Um, I wrote a play, um, when I was in Chicago, I had come off, uh, every year, Lauren Michaels would come out and, showcase people and i was i showcased for snl you know you do like five characters five impressions um obviously i didn't get the show um but had a lot of improv friends that also did impersonations that were quite good and in improv it's kind of looked down upon for whatever reason it's more like this is an artistic thing you don't do that so at the time i was getting a haircut and i was looking at a people magazine that um or National Enquirer that had like Tom's House of Horrors on the cover and it was about the Scientology involvement in Katie Holmes' choice to divorce him. And I just kind of became fascinated with it and started reading all kinds of material. And I read for probably like two, three weeks really to get my mind off of the heartbreak that I wasn't going to be on SNL that fall. Mm -hmm. And I just started writing this show that I thought was just going to be a little kind of comedy show for me and my friends. And we premiered it in what was basically like an upstairs arts gallery in Andersonville in Chicago. And it happened that I was waiting tables and I waited on a gal who had just moved with her husband from London. And she 
was a serious theater director at the Royal Court in London and had directed Ray Fiennes and stuff like that. But she was just like, I don't know anything about theater here or comedy. And I was like, she was, I think, a reader at Steppenwolf. She was just reading plays, kind of starting the bottom. And I was like, I'll give you 50 bucks to read this and tell me if it's a piece of shit. And she was like, it's great, and I want to direct it. So then we started, we kind of took all these comedy people, and we started doing like a serious theater rehearsal program, which was really hard for these you know, improv comics who are like, yeah, I'm doing the Dick Fart show up the street in a half hour. You want me to rehearse five nights a week? But it paid off and it became this kind of underground smash in Chicago and then ran at um, Fringe Festival in New York and then it came out to L.A. And it kind of takes it's it's like 80 percent real <laughs> of like dialogue from interviews with Tom Cruise and with Katie Holmes. And things they actually things said. they actually said. And when they when they when it's that we hold up a sign that says this is verbatim dialogue. And then the other things that are interspersed are rumors and hearsay and lies and tabloid stuff of what happened behind the scenes um of the marriage and of tom and scientology so it it went from just kind of being the silly show that when we were doing it in chicago like after the show people would come backstage and they'd be sobbing and we'd be like whoa what and they were like we i escaped scientology this this is going to bring down the church this play where we're on the the ex-anti-Scientology message boards and everybody's sharing that this show's getting in the news and we were like suddenly kind of tasked with this sense of Did you get pushback from Scientology? Because they don't play. They'll put a team of attorneys out in front of your house. He became best friends with Burt Fields. (laughs) I became friends with Tom Cruise's lawyer who passed away this last year. Um, Is that a good or a bad thing? Um, I mean, it was a good thing. I, I miss him. I love him. I was working on a documentary about him before he got sick. He got sick with COVID, and that's mm. what took him out. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I met with him in February 2019 or 2020, and we're like, we're going to do this this but, film. And but then, it was like you said, okay, Tom Cruise isn't dangerous enough. I'm going to make a movie about Oprah. So that's your next thing. Oh, yeah. Then I wrote – well, it never came out. I wrote a script that – was buzzing around for a while about Oprah. That was decidedly not a comedy. That was that was a true story based on her years in broadcasting and then um, kind of how she found her voice to create um, this persona that she had from being a, a failed newscaster. She wasn't she wasn't a good newscaster. She got bumped off the air when she moved to Baltimore from Nashville. But then kind of had this morning show that was kind of silly and it wasn't really anything. But she started to create this persona of just being this friendly neighbor and and really being herself and that's what got her this huge following and got her am chicago and eventually became the oprah winfrey show so it was called young oprah and it was it was optioned for you know a while by this producer who did like the wolf of wall street and it was like "Ah, so you're very smart you get people to whom you could apply for backing so if you write a great script for oprah you could go to harpo and ask them for some money or you could go to tom cruise and if it wasn't too defamatory you can't can't go to tom cruise (laughs) you can't go to (laughs) we can go to scientology what's that yeah well to answer your question though that there there were scientists when when the play the tomcat project came to la there were a lot of ex-Scientologists who came because it was it was right across from the L. Ron Hubbard Library at the old IOS Theater <laughs> no. on Hollywood Boulevard. But we had, you know, when we did the show, there's a it, the the concept is that there's 50 characters played by six actors. It's kind of like the Laramie Project, but funny. And this whole crowd of all these ex-Scientologists came. And when the David Miscavige, who's the head of the church, like when his character came out and would say something, they were like, hiss. You know, and they started like, we were like, okay, you got to take it down. We got to like keep doing the show. And they were like, fuck you, David. We were like trying to move into the next scene. But then one time, Tom Cruise's lawyer, who was a character in the play, Burt Fields, who's like the most famous entertainment lawyer of all time, he was in the audience. And I came out and was like doing my monologue, and I saw him, and I was like, I like, what? And like I was like, I'm, he's suing me. I'm going, I'm going to jail. Um, but he ended up giving, leading a standing ovation, and he laughed so hard. Wow. And then um, I became, you know, friends with him and his wife, and he he actually helped me with the Oprah thing. You know, wow. <laughs> call like calling Oprah's lawyer who used to work for him. So it, he'll be missed. 
Um, he's a complicated figure. Okay, before we wrap up, I just want to pose one thought for both of you. Should you get nominated for Best Documentary Category in the Oscars, name your price to mention the Media Path podcast in your acceptance <laughs> speech. I'll do it well, for Well, he already free. gave me $100,000 to be on his yeah. podcast. So what's going on with you and Diane Diamond? Are you working on a project with her? Was working on a project with her. Um, it it didn't go. Okay. We, we took a TV series that was really close. Uh, based on her great book, um, Be Careful Who You Love, Inside the Michael Jackson Cases. It's still good. It's a great script. It's... I spent three years working on it and working on the Bible, and we had some pretty incredible producers on it, but um, hopefully it will someday. Yeah, absolutely. How about you, Reed? What are you working on now? Um, I'm working on being a dad. I have four kids. <gasps> oh, um, really? And, uh, oh, my God. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's a really big effort to do a documentary like this. And so I'm just trying to, like, recenter, you know, like, mm. I feel like the industry pulls people in directions where it's like, I got to do the next project. You got to keep going. You got to, like, you know, like, you know, try to keep climbing the ladder. And I think that's all BS. And I, I'm just, you know, leaning into to family. And then, you know, I'll take on whatever project feels right for me. Well, you're giving your kids a gift by being uh, their dad at home and concentrating on them, and you're giving them a gift with this film because you uh, your, your film just oozes empathy, and it's a great look at for your children to see your family, and it'll make them to understand you better. Are, really. you, fi- are you filming your kids every year so that you have that footage should you ever choose no. to? No. How many times no, a day no. do you we- go... Shut up! I'm recording a voiceover. <laughs> it was really sweet, actually. But one of my uh, kids, my daughter, just walked in and you know knew that I was doing the interview, and then she just gave me a little squeeze on the hand. Oh. Oh. <laughs> I love. But yeah, that. yeah, there is, but there is also all of that too. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're both very talented. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. It really was. Thank you. I guys. wish you a uh, long life for your films and your careers. Yes. Thank you so much for thank joining you. us. And where can people find your film, Reed? I know it's still in theaters, but is there a streaming service that you're thinking about? Yeah, we're going to be um, streaming on the PBS app as well as broadcast on PBS and Independent Lens starting May 8th, right around the corner. Oh, great. And uh, yeah, we're in theaters, uh, you know, until then. But um yeah, thank you both for having me. Thank you all for having me, Brandon. I, you know, I love the idea of the Oprah Project and the and the other projects. I'd love to see your work. Listen, I'll send it to you if you want to direct it. <laughs> it's it, it's in turnaround, as they say in, in the biz industry. <laughs> Brandon, your film uh, "Damn Dana" is on YouTube. Yep, and you can uh, watch it as soon as support you're these films. Yes. Great, talented filmmakers. Can't wait to watch your movie, Reed. Thank you so much for joining Likewise. us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediaPathPod, and on Facebook, where our show page is MediaPathPodcast, and our Facebook group is MediaPath with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, MediaPathPodcast. You can write to us at MediaPathPodcast.com at gmail.com. If you enjoy the show, please give us a nice rating in Apple Podcasts using words like timeless and extraordinary and talk about <laughs> us with your friends and, and on social media. It's perfect for those conversation lulls or for when someone starts to ask you to help them move. You can sign up for our saucy rag of a newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com. We have a brand new website created by River Avenue Digital with much to explore. We want to thank our guests, Reed Harkness and Brandon Ogborn. Our team includes Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, Lori DeWall, Garrett Arch, Nick Broussard, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Palanker, here with Fritz Coleman. Be well and wise, and we will see you along the media path. Reed, thanks so much. Good luck to you, my friend. Great piece of work. Sounds good. Thank you both. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Brandon. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, right. Let's try it.